gun Ramos looking like he's got one more good run Sips a little shaky But his heart is still true Oh how that dog loves hunting with me and you Sporting dog adventures run The Sporting Dog Adventures podcast is proudly brought to you by Soggy Acres Retrievers. Remember, everyone deserves a soggy dog. Hey, welcome to the Sporting Dog Adventures podcast. For today's podcast, I thought we would talk about what it is like to have a TV show, but also to have dogs that are on a TV show, which is like adding chaos on top of chaos. Uh, I recently was uh, on a uh, chat with a few guys on a Facebook page uh, that were talking about TV shows and how it is very common that dogs will uh, break in the field. And you know what? They're absolutely right. You have so much going on that it is really hard to focus on just being a handler. You're in the field. Now, when I would go and film, I would often have uh, sponsors along. I would have my kids along who were very young and then you'd have a dog or two along it and a camera guy and a guide trying to keep everyone hidden and trying to make sure that everything works out right. I will say with a straight face that it does take away the fun of hunting and it really can ruin hunting for you because you now have gone from where you are hunting to where it is business. So imagine having your three kids, you're in a duck blind, and with those three kids, they are ages, let's say 12 to 16 years old. You've got your dog along that you're running, and that is to the right of you, the kids are to the left. You also have a guide that's calling, and you have a sponsor or two. You've got one or two camera guys, you're worried about your sound, you're worried about the shot, you're worried about uh, keeping your kids in line because hell, they're kids. And then you have your dog. I am not going to say that my dogs ran perfect on every show. Uh, there were several shows, many shows, where the dogs would break. And it was something where when they did, you addressed it. Uh, you attempted to make it the best that you can. But you also couldn't do things that even had the appearance of being heavy-handed because, again, you're on outdoor TV. You are in this fishbowl that I don't think people can really imagine what it's like until they're actually in that fishbowl sitting there with that light on them. It is fun, it is exciting, but it is also very stressful and sometimes just downright tough to be in that atmosphere. There are always going to be people that will critique your calling. Uh, That was very common for me because I had a wing shooting show when I wasn't a world champion caller and I would get critiqued and told that I sucked at it. You know what? I never professed to be the top caller in the world, never professed to be the top dog trainer in the world. And there were times when my dogs would break, you addressed it the best you could. But at the same time, when you're starting filming in September and you're filming probably 20 days or traveling, uh, traveling and filming about 20 days a month, all the way through the end of January, 
you didn't have a lot of time where you could really work with your dogs. Because after you get done with the hunt, you would be at a guide service. And the guide services generally would give you a hunt where they would swap out the ability to be marketed on your show as, as payment, or they would give you a reduced rate. It was only fair that when they got back, they wanted you to talk to all of the people that were at the lodge. So you basically had a dog and pony show where you're walking around and you are uh, shaking hands, kissing babies, and letting those clients know that this is a really cool place to hunt. It's part of your job as being there. You would then get to where you have dinner. And again, I would have my kids and you have other people with you. And you do that. You have dinner. You also have your production team that is working on glitches that happened in the field. And then after that, you still have your dogs to take care of. There wasn't a lot of time to go and fix any issues that you ran into. And on a normal trip, we would usually drive through the night on the way there and on the way back. So I would average probably right around three to four hours of sleep. I know everyone thinks that it's glamorous uh, when you're on TV. It looks glamorous. It's all editing. Uh, it is, again, a wonderful experience. It's something I would not have traded uh, for the world. Some of my fondest memories uh, with my, my kids have been the fact that I got to go on these great trips with them and they've met so many people and we've had such fun times. But at the same time, it puts years in your life because it is not all glitz and glam. You are living out of gas stations. You're getting very little sleep. And at, especially as the host, when you're an independent show, you are working probably 16 to 18 hour days at least and then trying to get a little bit of sleep in between. So it is, I guess, it, I guess it's really easy to look at something from the outside and be a waterfall guide or a dog trainer or a dog breeder and then have critiques of someone else that's in that industry. But do realize that it took the initiative of that person to take that risk to go on and do that. People think that in outdoor TV, you make just tons and tons of money. I will tell you that over nine years, I probably made about $15,000 a year on average. That was all that I made. Did I raise a lot of money? Yes. I raised between, I'll have to look sometime, but between probably $1.6 and $1.8 million. That money goes just like any business, to pay for all of your costs. You do not make money to be on outdoor TV. So every year, I would have right around, especially toward the end, I would be around $200,000 I had to raise before I made a penny myself. So all of that sponsor money that you raised was to pay for the incredible cost to be on TV. It is so expensive. You had your airtime, which for me ran about $120,000 a year. You had your editor, which was between fifty to sixty thousand dollars a year. You had your camera guys, which would run between three hundred to four hundred dollars a day per camera guy. Uh, and then when you traveled, they would get half of that pay on travel days. If you flew anywhere, you had to pay for everyone's tickets. If you stopped anywhere to eat, you had to pay for everyone's food. Uh, you had your fuel. You had your expenses. You had your vehicles. At times, you, I, I had to have two vehicles uh, that we would use because we had to go places and had more than one vehicle would carry. It was expensive. It was something that I don't think people realize quite how expensive and quite what the costs are. But it is something that I think until people realize what all goes into it, 
they will look at it from the outside and say, you know what, you only hunted two to three hours that day. What else did you do? Why didn't you fix this? Why didn't you fix that? And, and they don't really realize all that goes into it. It is stressful and it is so much work. Um, we ended up uh, ending our show after nine seasons. Uh, one of my sons, Cole, passed away. And I hit the point where, from a business perspective with Soggy Acres Retrievers, I was, I was not going to gain any more marketing, uh, that at least that I needed uh, for my business to, to make it uh, uh, grow. We were already maxed out on where I wanted it to be. And it would have just been ego to continue it. After losing Cole, it just turned into the point where it was time. You hit the point, I think, with everything where you look and say, you know what, it was a good ride. It's time to call it and time to uh, time to, to, to put an end to it. It's hard because you're always proud of something like that when you build it. Whether it's a business in construction, uh, a restaurant, or a TV show, you've built something that so many others would like to have and would like to actually do. And to let it go, I think is one of the harder things I've had to do in my life. You look in the mirror and you just tell yourself, you know what, I'm going out on my own. It's not that I ended up with a mountain of debt where I couldn't do it anymore. It wasn't that uh, you didn't have sponsors. It just ended up being the time that I chose uh, to walk away from it. And I think that is something that you look back on and you're proud of. But it is always where I have people that have that dream and you try to be as realistic as possible. They have a camera. They say, you know what? I've got great hunting spots and you need all that, but you also need the time to sell it. You need to be able to run a business. You need to be able to juggle five balls in the air at one time and you need to be able to comp compete for that money that's out there that doesn't just come calling. There are very few times. I think there were only two times that I had a sponsor call me. It was always where you were constantly in sales mode, constantly going to shows like SHOT Show in Las Vegas, constantly going to uh, sports shows and talking to potential clients and also competing against the other hundreds of shows that are out there. So it is something that I've never dissuaded anyone from or told anyone not to do, but I've tried to be realistic to say, one, you need to be able to get away so that you can do your filming. You have many times that you'll film for four days and get one episode. You also need to have your concept that you can sell and you can't give it to someone else to sell because it's your dream. So you have to be able to sell it yourself. And then you need to be able to have the, the financial backing or ability to borrow against your house like I did so that you can have the show and Again, have that vision so that you look at it and go, this is what I want to do. I'm going to invest in myself. Once you have all that, hey, get the camera, get, your guy, get, get yourself set up and go with it. It is not widely publicized by the TV networks, but it's obvious when you watch a lot of shows. If you have the money to pay for airtime, they will put your show on. All you need to do is give them uh, the editing in the segments so that it fits uh, within the show framework and they will put your show on. The networks will always make you think that you have to have this wonderful uh, production value and everything else. But if you watch a lot of shows that are on, it doesn't take a whole lot to get on the air. It just takes, a, it takes your check and that the check doesn't bounce. So never let it dissuade you that you need to have something that is polished like our show was toward the end 
you can have something that is rough as hell and they will still put it on as long as your check clears. I hope that gives you guys a little bit of insight. It was just something that I was talking to people uh, on the uh, on Facebook about and I thought, hell, why not just go out there and why not talk about it and put it out there. It's funny because you will also see a lot of times where you see critiques and a lot of those same people that were critiquing tried to have a show or wanted to be on a show and that really bothers them that they weren't. It comes down to marketing. Everyone takes their risks to do things different ways. In the dog world, people will market by putting on seminars. Some will campaign their dogs. Some run competition. There's all different ways that you can market. It all comes down to to the same thing in my business, that you need to get yourself out there in front of people, and that will help you become more successful. So I hope that helps you. Hope you guys have a great day. Thank you so much for listening. Now stay tuned for our training tip part of the uh, podcast coming up. This portion of the podcast is proudly brought to you by Boucher Automotive in Janesville, Wisconsin. Conditioning your dog to gunfire is one of the most important steps in your training program. I have witnessed many dogs that were not recoverable uh, for hunting because they weren't introduced properly to gunfire. Now, a lot of people just start shooting over their dogs. And you know what? Honestly, that can work for some. But once you have a dog that is scared of gunfire, it is tough to fix. Every year, I get at least two calls, maybe more, on people that have a dog that is gun shy. And I try to be as honest as I can and tell them, in essence, about 25% of those dogs are probably recoverable. Some will argue more, and honestly, a lot of it depends on the dog, how many times it was shot over, and, and what kind of experience the dog had. But that is a lot of ifs when you're looking at possibly investing in professional training for your dog. What I always tell people is that I use distraction training uh, for dogs when you're introducing them to loud noises and gunfire. Uh, I've seen where people use uh, two blocks of wood and they have their dog eating and smack the blocks of wood together while the dog is eating because, hey, labs love to eat. Um, We did an episode where we had a dog that was retrieving and started at 100 yards shooting. Um, Once every time the bumper was thrown and the dog would go and retrieve it until the person shooting the gun was right next to uh, the handler that was running the dog. Um, personally, what I do uh, at our at our kennel, Soggy Acres Retrievers, when I train for gunfire, is I take half the dogs out. We usually have eight dogs in. I take half the dogs out and let them all go after one bumper and be competitive and have fun and play in our dog yard for about a week. And then I start shooting off a 209 primer pistol. Uh, once or twice while we're doing that same activity a few weeks later to the point where then we're shooting off a shotgun uh, while the dogs are running and all trying to get the bumper. To me it works well because the dogs are also focused on being the first one to get to the bumper and playing and it, it really allows for me to have something that is a complete distraction for them so that they also uh, end up where gunfire is a fun thing and they are conditioned to it. So there's a lot of different things you can do, but what you want to do is make sure that the focus is not on the shot, but on something that enjoyable that the dog is doing. Hope that helped. 
for this week's tip. Stay tuned for more Sporting Dog Adventures coming up when we have a hunting tip next after this. This part of the podcast is brought to you proudly by Mech Outdoors. For today's hunting tip, I wanted to talk about decoys and actually talk about how many decoys you stick out uh, when you're going on a hunt. I've been hunting all over North America and I've seen some spreads where people will put out hundreds upon hundreds of decoys and then you see the birds come in and they're coming in not in those numbers. Uh, Not that you ever see a hundred birds come in, but when you're scouting fields, you just see sparse uh, birds around. Maybe you're running traffic. Maybe it's uh, the migration is not on, but I always try to mimic what I'm seeing in the field. I hunt a lot of water and if I am out and I'm not seeing huge groups of 30 or 40 birds, but there's a lot of smaller groups, I'll actually mimic that and put out maybe two small groups that are on the left and right and then have my motion decoys in that hole so that it is looking more like what the reality is for the hunting that I'm doing. It all comes down to scouting and seeing what the birds are doing in your area. You have to try to mimic what there is so that you're not on an early season hunt in Wisconsin sticking out 100 floater decoys when there just aren't those numbers of birds because the migration's not on. So it is trying to, I guess, be as realistic as you can with your birds as you get them out there, uh, or your decoys as you get them out there so that the birds see stuff and it doesn't cause alarm. I hope that helps. Hunting season's coming up. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Sporting Dog Adventures podcast. Take care and God bless. Sporting dog adventures, run, boy, run. Everything you need is here under the sun.